A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23 and of course Johnny goes nuts. So I'll get first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, he made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time and I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 12. Thanks for joining me. Go to inallairness.com for show notes and plenty more features. The social hub for the podcast is facebook.com slash inallairness. If you haven't already, please like the page and join the growing community of fans. Add the podcast to your RSS feed or iTunes so you never miss another show. It's also available on Stitcher, Blackberry, Player FM, TuneIn Radio and numerous other podcatchers. I love hearing from listeners. On either site, you can send voicemail, comments or questions. With your permission, I'd love to include your feedback on future episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at InAllAirness. My guest today spends a majority of his time living here in Australia, seemingly far removed from his basketball origins in his native country, the USA. However, he is still deeply involved with the sport. He's a 14-year veteran of the NBA and has the distinction of being teammates with Dr. J, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, and Akeem Olajuwon. Sadal Threat, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Sadly, in the last day or so, Dr. Jerry Buss, the owner of the Lakers, passed away. Can you please briefly talk about the man himself and his impact on sports in general, particularly given your association with him during your time at the Lakers? Look, um... Dr. Buss was uh, probably probably one of the best owners in sports. I, I think the, the biggest thing, I got a chance to get to know him you know, well. I uh, was around him a lot. Uh, he's what you call the perfect owner. And one of the reasons I would, I would say he's probably one of the best owners is his word. You know, what he tells you is what it is. And the, the Lakers was kind of built on that. If you walked into the, the office and you was on a free agent year and you, you asked for this amount of money, you know, the Lakers and Dr. Buss would always pay you what you thought you deserved. But then on the flip side of that, you wanted, they wanted you to perform at your highest on the basketball court. So his word, you know, from when you know, people ask me about Dr. Buss, let alone he was a, you know, a, a great guy, but his word was, was true. And any time his name has come up, I'll always tell people about the situation. And I was, you know, sadly, you know, to hear what, you know, he had passed away. And he had been sick for, you know, for a couple of years. But we, we actually lost one of the one of the great ones. And he probably going to go down in history as one, probably one of the two of the best owners in, in sport. Yeah, he would for sure. And he was instrumental in putting together those 10 championship teams with the Lakers. And right to the very end was obviously 
Lakers through and through. No question. Now, not surprisingly, you're the only player to ever make the NBA from West Virginia University's Institute of Technology. One other graduate played in the ABA in the early 1970s, but you alone made it to the highest level. Can you please talk about your four-year college career where you entered the NBA with career averages of 21 points, five assists, and also four boards a game? Yeah, my, my college career was uh, was something a little different than, than normal. Normally, these basketball players come from, you know, high D1 schools. And when I was in high school, you know, I was a pretty good player. And I signed a letter of intent because West Virginia Tech was um, was very interested in me when I was in high school. And then I signed the letter of intent, but then I played in the state all-star game. And I actually played well. And I think I dropped about 20, 27 points, about 10 assists. After that particular game, all of a sudden I had all these D1 schools, you know, wanted me to, you know, come to their school. But my dad was, um, my dad was real instrumental in, in my uh, development and my decision making. And he told me that because you had signed the letter of intent, this school wanted you. All these D1 schools now, they want you now after you had performed that way. And he said, look, there's two ways you can go. You can stay here and be a big fish in a little pond, mm-hmm. or you can go to one of these D1 schools and, um, you know, be a small fish in, in that big old pond. And uh, he said, you probably sit for your first two years. And I didn't want to sit my first two years. And so I decided to stay at West Virginia Tech. And uh, I started my freshman year. And I actually started the, you know, my whole my whole career there at West Virginia Tech. Played, a, you know, a lot of minutes and I scored a lot of points. And we played that run and gun style of basketball. So I got a chance to really get a big number. So I think my game high there was 56 in about three quarters. I was actually going for the the record was 72 points there at West Virginia, and I had an opportunity to break that, but we ended up holding the ball because the team was coming back. So, uh, but my my basketball career there was very good for my development. To be on the floor for four years, night in and night out, was probably probably the most important thing as far as my uh, career and moving on to the next level. You know, a lot of guys get a chance to you know split minutes and and do all those things. But my development at West Virginia Tech was probably the best thing that happened to me. You developed year by year, which obviously held you in good stead when it came to NBA draft time. And the Philadelphia 76ers selected you with pick 139 in the 1983 draft. Coming from a small college that had never produced NBA-level talent until your arrival, what expectations did you have of being selected in the draft today? Well, I think I played in this uh, in this Portsmouth All-Star game, and um, it was it was the second, third, fourth round, fifth round guys. There's about 64 guys in that in that tournament down there, and I went down there. and I played well, and uh, Marty, I think Marty Blake at the time, who was actually running that that All-Star game, said to everyone there, "Everybody is going to get drafted." And when he said that, that was probably the, the, the most, I would say, the most instrumental thing to me happened that my extra senior year, just to hear those words that we was going to get drafted. I didn't care if I was, you know, I know I wasn't going to be a you know, first-round pick. I didn't care from 2 to 10 where I ended up as long as I got opportunity to, you know, prove myself. And, um, yep, I went to the, the, the camps. I went to rookie camp, played well, and then I ended up going to the, the, the tournament up in Princeton, 
when we had New York, New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia, and Washington Bullets. And I went up there and averaged 27 points a game. And that's when it kind of all started for me as far as a rookie. I played well enough up there. And at that particular time, Darren Walker was the number 10th pick, and he was the best guard in the country that particular year. And I actually gave him 42 points up there. <laughs> and so he is the best guard in the country. Um, you know, I'm dropping 42 on him. I'm from a real small school. But at my school, we at West Virginia, we played a, a run-and-gun style uh, basketball game. Uh, you know, in, in, in D1 basketball, they pass, pass around four or five passes. Our offense would get it off the board and go quick and shoot it quick. And so I think I caught Dale Walker by surprise, you know, on a fast break coming at him 100 miles an hour, going by him and all that. And I think that's what the start as far as being an NBA guard. To, you know, he is the number one pick. And I mean the number one guard in the, in the country that year, and you and gave him 42 points. And that's where it all started for me as far as the NBA. Yeah, and you made the most of every opportunity, and that style of playing college obviously suited you well come NBA time, as you said. Yes, yes, that that got me, that got me started that style of play, and I used to watch the you know the NBA a lot, and uh, I used to really follow a guy named Gus Williams, and he was um, a great player in the NBA, and I actually played against him for about four or five years. He's the guy that I idolized when I was coming up when I was in college because of his style of play, run, gun, shoot off the fast break, and all that. So me and his style was similar. Speaking of Gus Williams, how do you go, you idolise somebody when you're growing up and you want to make it to the highest level. What do you actually do to try and adjust to take them on in a game when it matters the most? I, I think the first thing is confidence. you you got to be you got to be very confident and you can't have no weaknesses in your game at that level. Yeah. I was very lucky at 14 years old. I was playing against pros at 14 years old. I used to train against the Atlanta Hawks when I was 14. Oh, wow. A lot of those ex-players down up because I was a, I was so good at 14, those guys used to let me play. So I had a little pro experience playing against those guys. And coming into the NBA, you you got to be confident. you got to believe in your, in your ability. If not, those guys at that level, they could, they could take you out of your, your game. And basically, you, if they take you out of your game, you get cut at that level. Here are some incredible stats I'd just like to quickly run by you that put you in some very elite company. 226 players were selected in that 1983 draft. Only 57 of them played in the NBA. And of the 55 players who were picked ahead of you that made the league, you rank fourth in assists with over 3,600. You're seventh in games played at 951. And you're eighth in total points scored at just under 9,500 points. And with a nickname like The Thief, I'm sure you'd be likely atop the list of steals too, but I couldn't track those stats down. What are your thoughts on those great numbers, Sadale? Well, I think that, that, that all those guys that, that you know get drafted ahead of you, um, you you don't really look at anybody else's game. I think that's a big accomplishment mm-hmm. as far as you know hearing those hearing those stats. And one thing I knew about the NBA, you know, it's about longevity. And if you can get past three and a half years, you um, you can have a good career. Uh, I think of quite a few of those guys, you know, because they played at certain schools, you know, you get drafted. And, again, you know, a lot of those guys, if you look back and you look at the history, you know, how, how many college minutes did they play? you got to look at that top, that top ten tier. Those are guys that you expect to stay. The, the, the tricky thing about the NBA, every year they bring new guys in. So that means guys are leaving. 
So it, it, it's, uh, I think for as far as myself, it was, it was a big accomplishment. I, I done well. Again, I survived because I didn't have any weaknesses in my game. And I think that was my college development that helped me get to that point. And, again, you got to be confident at that level. Yeah, that's exactly right. And also, these days, players are just, well, it's the phrase one and done. They pretty much have one year in college and then they hit the pros. And that's only sometimes because they have to as part of the NBA rules. So I definitely see where you're coming from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to, once you get there, you got to stay there. And that's where a lot of guys, even if a lot of those first-round picks guys, you know, after two, three years, they, you know, they ought to leave. And, again, it's something that I think you're missing in your, in your development as far as getting to the pros. Everybody can play. But once you get there, as soon as you get exposed and they find your weakness, it, it travels through the league and every, because they got so many scouts there, and they scout every player there, and they know what you can do and what you cannot do. They know your strength. And as soon as you, you they find your weakness, they is exploited through the league. And I think that would exit a lot of guys at that level. Obviously, they're very well researched, spot on. Now, you shoot the ball right-handed, but when dribbling, you're really skilled going left. Now, clearly, that kept defenders guessing your movements off the dribble throughout your whole career. Was this something that you naturally developed growing up, or did you learn that just in your college days? Well, I think it was something that I developed as a young kid. Mm. I was a right-handed guy, and uh, I actually broke my um, my right arm when I was when I was like 12 or 13. And then I started working with my left hand, and that's how I developed my, you know, left hand. And I started going left after I really broke, you know, broke my right hand, and that's how I developed it. But it was a great advantage because you can go left, and I could step back off of you and shoot it. And then when I got to my right hand, I could go to the basket very quick on you. So it was, it was a, it was kind of unorthodox for a lot of guys, and I think that's why I was so successful with it because I could step back on that going left. And I, I think a lot of guys in the NBA, you know, felt the, the raft of that, me going left, and then you get up on me and I go right. So, again, you you, you can't have no weaknesses. Again, you, you I'm a big right-hand guy, but I'm a big left-hand guy. I threw guys off because I could really go left. And that was a scout report on me. If he go left, he's going to pull up and shoot it. And they still were having trouble defending you all those years. Now, speaking of signature skills, you mentioned your step-back jumper. That was one of your great go-to moves. It allowed you the extra half second or so to get that shot off, and it paid dividends your whole career too. When did you start to implement that move into your game, or was that part of what naturally developed following the left-handed skills? Well, it, it, it developed. I, I think once I got into the league, because you, uh, those guys at that level, they got great defenders at that, at that level, and you got to be able to get your shot. At the NBA, it's a one-on-one -on -one game. And if you can't get your shot, you, you tend to be limited. And, you know, those guys are skilled. They can jump and they can defend. And I had an opportunity to play against a guy like Maurice Cheeks every day in, in, in practice. And he was a defender. He was one of the best guards. You know, it all started the year I came in, him and Andrew Tony. And so you playing against two of the, you know, Andrew Tony was a big-time scorer. Then I had Maurice Cheeks who won probably one of the best point guards at the time, and he was a defender. And you got to find some ways to get it off on those kind of guys. And because I had the quickness and a step-back jump shot, you know, it, it, they, they really couldn't get to that shot. And that was more my, my, my signature move over, the, over that pretty much my career. Yeah, definitely, and that was a great move for sure. Your rookie season in Philly, speaking of Mo Cheeks and, and Andrew Tony and those sort of guys, the roster was loaded with some greats of the game. Dr. J, of course, uh, Bobby Jones, and also yep. Moses Malone, too. Can you talk about your move to Philadelphia? And did anybody 
particularly take you under their wing and teach you about professional life in the NBA? Oh yeah, I was I was very fortunate because you you come in and you come. Matter of fact, the, the Sixers had won a championship that year, and so to come in that you know that particular next year with those caliber of players, you know you got five of those guys and you just name them all. All those guys are all stars, mm-hmm. and to have a guy like Moses, you know Tony Cheeks, Bobby Jones, all these guys, Dr. J, all these guys teaching you how to be an NBA guy. And I was fortunate because I had Maurice Cheeks, who was a, a you know the best point guard at that particular time, and I had Andrew Toner, who was the best you know one of the best two guards at that particular time. Mm-hmm. And so I could interchange because I could go to, from the one position to the two position. So there, that experience with those guys teaching you how to play in the NBA, teaching you how to be a pro, was was what paid dividends for me. A lot of guys go to, you know, like the Clippers at that time, who wasn't, a, you know, good teams. A lot of guys go there, and they and they got young guys there, and that hinders your development. You need some veteran guys there to teach you how to be a pro. And so I was very fortunate, you know, to have those guys, to you know, to to really put me under their wing and show me how to, you know, do it, try to be a pro. And then my following year, you got Charles Barkley. Who came in under those guys? So I, I think that has a lot to do with your success once you get to the NBA, and you know how to, you know, stay there. Um, I did a lot of training. I trained every day off season. Yeah. I, you know, I was the first guy there, the last guy to leave. And those some of the things that those guys, you know, they taught me. And I played a lot of one on one with, you know, Tony and Cheeks and all those great six of guards there. And I think that really helped my development and that actually kept me in the pros for a long time. Yeah, and you obviously hold them in high esteem now, even talking about them all those years later, which is great to hear. Is it possible to narrow down your greatest lesson that you learned playing with the 76th franchise today? I, I think the biggest thing was the, the defense. You know, um, Billy, Billy Cunningham, who was the head coach at that time, when I, when I came out of college, I was, I was a big-time scorer. Hmm. You know, I could do that. And you, you know, once you step on a championship team like that, and you go up to score, and I wanted me shot a couple of jumpers back to back, and, and and Billy pulled me to the side and said, "Look, Sadell, you can score, but we already got we got proven all star. Andrew Tony is a big score. Moses, Dr. J, these guys are proven all stars here. You got to play defense." And so I took that role on. I started picking people up full court and start modeling my game up to Maurice Cheeks, and then I, and Cheeks was a steal guy. And for me to have that experience, watching him steal the ball and learning what he was doing on the basketball court, and then I became a real, over my career, I became a real steals guy. I started stealing the ball a lot once I I got my, you know, my feet under it and knowing how to do it in steals, you know, making a lot of steals from different guys. And so that really developed my defensive game. And, and that's how I got that name, The Thief, because I used to watch Cheeks all the time and know when guys turn their back, they're not looking or just pressuring guys in the backcourt for 48 minutes. And you can soon they, you know, make a mistake, you steal the ball from them. And so I became um, a very good steals guy in the league. Now, on New Year's Eve in 1986, you were traded to the Chicago Bulls. Did you have any inclination at the time that you were on the trading block before you heard about the deal? No, not not really, not really. You you know the you, you know the good thing about being traded is somebody wants you and somebody getting rid of you. Yeah. But you know, going to going to Chicago was a, I think was a, another good experience for me. You know, to play with play with Michael Jordan. 
You know, he is probably the best player ever to play the game. And I had a year to, you know, play against him because I had to guard him in practice. And so to guard a guy like that and, and, and compete with him every day and then just to watch and see how good he was and how, how good he could jump and shoot and very quick and he, he hated to lose. So it was a good experience, you know, playing with him for one year. But the only thing that was bad about that situation, you didn't play because you were playing behind him. Yeah. And uh, it was one of those particular incidents where I knew I got to get out of Chicago. Uh, Doug Collins was the coach at the time. And he said, Fidel, go into the game. And so I walked up to the clock and I, you know, I snatched my, my pants and my top off. And then Michael was coming down the court and he said, Fidel, who you got? I said, I got you. And he said, I will. I'm not ready to come out. I'm not ready to come out, Doug. I'm not ready to come out. And then Doug told me to come back. So I had to take that lonely walk back to the bench and sit down. And that was very embarrassing for me because you got all your teammates laughing. And so I said, there, oh, I got to get out of Chicago. This is not a good place because this guy going to play, you know, 46 minutes. So I got to get out of it because I never play. And so, but my experience in Chicago was a good experience, though, just to know that playing against that guy every day, I learned a lot against him. Yeah, difficult situation, certainly when you get sent back to the bench from your own teammates. So obviously it was a really a difficult place to be in but again as you said it did teach you some things going forwards as well how were the first days in Chicago when you first came across from Philadelphia like how were you accepted by the team and, and particularly MJ himself as far as off the court goes yeah yeah they look they, oh, at a particular time we all young guys and and you you try to you, everybody's still learning because we're still young pros and and, and MJ was a you, you you actually watched I watched him grow you know, I watched him turn into Michael Jordan. There was a lot of young boys on that team. That team was young. Mm-hmm. You know, we had Charles Oakley, Brad Sellers, you, Pete Myers. There was a lot of young guys on that team. And to watch all of us grow into the, you know, to being, a, you know, a good NBA player. But um, Chicago was was a was a was a good experience. But as far as the playing side, it was it wasn't it wasn't that great though. Would you be able to indulge my appetite for Jordan's stories, just for one more question, particularly as his 50th birthday has just come and gone? Are there any particular untold moments, funny or otherwise, that you can think of that relate to your time spent with the Bulls and particularly uh, MJ? Yeah, well, uh, I think one, one thing comes to mind. One day, Jordan, uh, he rung me up. He said, Dale, I'm, I'm coming by your house to pick you up. Now, he had just signed this big, big deal with Carvet the car company. And so he said, I'm going to be at your house in about 30 minutes. So get ready, and we're going to take this car out. I said, okay. Jordan gets to my house in 15 minutes. He's blowing his horn, and I wasn't ready. He's blowing his horn out in front of my house. So I finally get out and uh, jump in the car with him, and we we driving around in these neighborhoods, and we testing this new car right out. And Jordan is speeding everywhere. He's speeding. Now, we in a, we go down this partic- one particular street, it's a, probably a 35 miles per hour street. Jordan is doing 75 in there. All of a sudden, we speed and speeding. The police get behind us, right? They turn on the lights. Now, I'm sitting there thinking, uh-oh. Luckily, I'm not driving. The great Michael Jordan is driving. I said, oh, he's doing 75 in the 35. Oh, they're going to take him to jail. That's what I'm thinking. That's reckless driving, right, in a neighborhood. And... It's two police officers, um, both of them gets out. 
And as one of them get out, I'm in the passenger side. I look in my rear view mirror right there, and this guy don't unhook his, uh, you know, his uh, gun gun belt. And I'm thinking, hold up, I'm not driving. Jordan is doing the drive. Don't be unhooking your belt like you finna shoot somebody. So they walk up to the car slowly, looking in, and the guy looking. He said, Michael Jordan. He said, Wow, how fast was you going? And I'm sitting there like, let's stop talking. Let's put the cuffs on him because that was the deal. Three driving. Y'all going to arrest me. You're going to put me in the back seat and take me out of town. Let's stop talking and put these cuffs on Jordan. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. <laughs> and, the, and the police officer said, Jordan, how fast was you going? Jordan said, oh, I was going about 35. He said, no, you weren't. You were doing 75. I'm thinking, Stop talking. Let's put the cuffs on him. We're talking too much. Put the cuffs on him. The great Michael Jordan. He said, look, Jordan, come over to my house and sign some autographs, and we'll forget this. And I'm sitting there thinking, what? Are you kidding me? If that's me, you gonna, you guys going to take me down. If I'm driving, y'all going to take me downtown. <laughs> so Jordan said, okay. So this guy don't radio the head. And now another cruiser comes up. Now, we got two police cruisers following us to this guy's house. We took about 10 minutes. We get to this police officer's house, and it's about 10 to, 10 to 15 kids standing out there. They got everything, jersey, shoes. They got all this stuff. Michael Jordan posts all this stuff to sign. Jordan gets out the car, walks up on the grass. He signed all the autographs. Right? And I'm sitting in the car. I got my window down. And Jordan looking and say, hey, kids, that's the day of three. Do y'all want his autograph? <laughs> the kids say, no, we don't want his autograph. I say, what? <laughs> I, say, I cannot believe this. Jordan Speed, he don't go to jail. These kids don't insult me. Oh, my goodness. What else going to happen to me? Uh, Jordan walks around, gets into the car, right? The police officer, the kid, everybody's standing there. You know what Jordan does? No. He speeds out of there. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I'm thinking, wow. And now I knew I'm with Michael Joy right now. Oh man, that's a, that's a great story. That's very entertaining. Thank you for thank you for relaying that one onto us. Okay, that was excellent. Now, 1988 was Chicago's best chance to advance further in the playoffs. They added Horace Grant and future Hall of Famer Scotty Pippen. However, mm -hmm. prior to the February trade deadline, you were sent to the Seattle SuperSonics in exchange mm -hmm. for Sam Vincent. Yep. Your last game as a Bulls player was a memorable overtime win against the Sonics, and yep. MJ had another stunning stat line. Therefore, you played against and with your new team in back-to-back -back games, which is quite unusual. Mm -hmm. Can you describe your feelings of moving to the Western Conference to then play with the Sonics? Obviously, it gave you some more opportunities, to say the least. Yeah, look, Seattle was a, was a, was a great situation for them because they played my style of play up there. Fast, quick, and they used to press a lot up there. And I love Bernard Bickerstaff, um, his, the way he coached up there. He, you know, he gave you freedom, and uh, they got after you defensively up there. Cloppenberg uh, was the defensive coach, and he was probably my best defensive coach ever. And we used to really get after being in Seattle. My experience in Seattle was great because you because they really wasn't worried about you know minutes up there because everybody played. If you press and you up on your man, you play. And then offensively, we can run and gun at you. And I actually enjoyed the West Coast style of play better than the East because the East is a walk-it-up, grind-it-out type game. 
the West Coast, they run and gun over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was something that I really enjoyed. Seattle was a, was a great place. You know, I had an opportunity with Nate McMillan, Dale Ellison, Xavier McDaniel, Tom Chambers, Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, all those great players up there. Was, it, it basically fitted my style of play up there. And then I got a chance to play against the, you know, play against the Lakers a little more than you're playing against, you know, uh, one time, uh, two time on the, as far as when I was in the East Coast. So I, I really love playing against the, the, the Western, the Western teams up there, Portland, Utah, you know, Seattle, Denver. I loved it because they run and gun over there, up and down. Yeah, suited your game very well. You mentioned some great players there in Seattle, and you've covered pretty much all the names I was going to mention there, except for Michael Cage, I guess, who was one of the great yep, rebounders. Cage, yep. Yeah, one of the great rebounders of his time and, and all time, really. How was the chemistry of those teams? Obviously, you were a run and gun type team, and you had a young Gary Payton and Sean Kemp also coming through. But as a more experienced player yourself, how did you meld with the other guys on the team? Yeah, look, Seattle was again. Seattle was was a it was a great situation. We was all you know pretty young, you know, up and coming young players, and it, it, just the, the way that the guy we was close up there. All the guys was very close up there, mm-hmm. and just the style of play because we used to press all the time, and we was quick, fast. Guys could shoot, and guys wanted to defend. And we was we was a good, a good unit, you know. I, I think we it was Magic Johnson, the Lakers was the, always used to knock us out the playoffs up there when I was in Seattle. And but that that particular group was very good. We we had you know good coach in, in Casey Jones and Vernon Pickerstaff. It was a it, to me it was one of my best best teams as far as the NBA. I really enjoyed playing for Seattle. And I was a little sad, you know, once that, you know, once they actually lost that Seattle Sonic, uh, the team. I actually, you know, you know, when they, when they moved on and they even got rid of the name, that, that kind of, you know, you know, brought a little, little sadness to, to my eyes. But, you know, I've heard now that they, they're trying to get a team back up there in Seattle. So, but they got a lot of good fans up there and, uh, I really enjoyed playing there. Yeah, the fan base up there is fantastic, and hopefully another franchise, whether it is the Sacramento team that end up moving, or yep. or perhaps in the sh- in the longer term another team does go to Seattle, the fans are there waiting to take them under their wing again and, and support them like they had in the past. Yep, yeah, they got a good appetite up there. Yep. Yeah. In October of 1991, the Sonics traded you to the LA Lakers. You right. started the 1992 season with three tough overtime games, and Magic Johnson didn't play those first three games. Then on November the 7th of 1991, Magic stunned the world, retiring from the NBA, effective immediately, by announcing that he had the HIV virus. In a private team meeting at the Forum in LA, prior to his national announcement, he broke the news to you and the team. Are you able to just talk about that meeting and the emotions within the room at the time? Look, it was, um, that was a real uh, tough time as far as uh, sports. Um, uh, I think in Los Angeles it was it was sh- it was very shocking for when Herb actually uh, announced that it was um, we was actually in Paris and we were flying back from uh, uh, Paris. We had played in that McDonald Cup over there, mm-hmm. and uh, after the game, um, they said it was going to be a big announcement once we get back to LA. So that that plane ride back to Los Angeles from Paris was a long, you know, grueling. Right, it was like one of a funeral because it was so quiet on that on that particular flight. And uh, 
once we once we got back and he announced that it was it was shocking because they had picked the Lakers to win the NBA championship that year, and so um, it was um, it was devastating I think, and the the. For me to be the guy to take Magic's, you know, you know, take his spot mm-hmm. and start in his spot that year was was um, wasn't too overwhelming for me because I was a veteran player at the particular time. If I would have been a young guy and dropping into to feel somebody's shoes, you know, like Magic Johnson, oh, it would have been tough on me. Um, I, but I, because I was a veteran, I had been around the league for a long time, and so I could I could handle that pressure. And I think we 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 won. I don't know, uh, seven. I think seven or nine straight games after he went down. And uh, but overall, it was I think for LA and for the Laker fans, it was it was devastating. And and to hear her make that speech, and to, and to stand up and, and be a man and, and and announce that you know you you got to take your hat off to him. I think that the whole entire world was oblivious of, you know, with HIV. You know, we you you knew of it, but you didn't know what it really really meant mm-hmm. until he actually educated the world, you know, on, on HIV. You know, you knew of it, but when, when he actually got it and 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 he educated us, and I, and I think for his legacy, let alone being one of the best, you know, Lakers are the best, one of the best guards of all time. Mm-hmm. I think that was on his pathway, you know, to educate the world about HIV. And then when he actually came back uh, and trained, and you know, I was guarding this guy in training, in training, you know, you know, with that. And you didn't, the player against him in in, in training, because we had been educated, he was just another basketball player to us. Mm. I think the only guy that complained really was Carl Malone. Carl Malone made a you know a big deal out of you know Irving coming back and playing against him, and he was worried about you know being exposed to it. But again, Irving had educated that the world had got really educated because of because of that um, HIV problems. That's very true, and thanks for your honest answer and thoughts there. I do appreciate it. The day after Magic made that announcement, your Lakers travelled to Phoenix to take on the Suns, and you suffered a blowout loss, 113 to 85. How difficult a challenge was it to prepare for another game only hours after the public learning the news of Magic's season-altering retirement? Well, I, I think it was draining. I, I think it was we was in shock, and you were trying to, you know, play with that hanging over your, you know, over your head. And it was a media circus at that particular time. Mm. Um, it was, um, it was, it was, a, it was a dark time in in LA. Um, I can remember when he actually announced it and I went outside and it was like a black cloud over LA. And so, but again, basketball goes on, the Lakers will go on and to lose your, 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 your leader, you know, like that was very devastating to us. But again, we gotta, you gotta keep playing, you know, again, Jerry West and, and Dr. Bust, those guys, yes, we've been hit by our leader, but you gotta keep playing and the Lakers will go on. And that you did, you went on to, uh, you had a great career with LA, and we'll get to some of your achievements there shortly. In a March 1992 game, you scored a career-high 42 points. Yep. Ron Thulin, the TNT commentator at the time, jokingly suggested that you needed to have a saliva test that you were playing that well. You lit up the Knicks, and particularly in the second half, you had an amazing second half. 
Do you have fond memories of that particular game, and can you recall the one I'm talking about? Yeah, that was that was probably my best my best game in 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 my NBA career. To go in the garden and drop 42 on Pat Riley, who was actually coaching, and we was actually I was running a, a pick and roll with Blotty, and they was showing their recover. And again, I'm going to my left. Yeah, that's a ninety that's a ninety five assist shot for me. And they tried every guard on me that particular night. And it was one of those nights where I was feeling it and, and I just couldn't miss. And then when it would come off the board and I would get it, I'll come at them 100 miles an hour. And so it was just one of those games that they could not find me. And that was probably my, my biggest game. That particular game, he had every he had Starks, he had Wilkins, he had Anthony, he had every guard there on me. And then they tried to double-team me on the screen and roll, but it was too late. I was just into a big old zone, and there was nothing they could actually do. And I think we we played – I went to Atlanta the next game. We beat Atlanta. I had about 25. And then our first game back home was against New York Knicks. And, you know, you walk out before the game, and um, and Charles Oakley, you know, a pretty good friend of mine at a particular time, said, look, you're not getting off tonight. <laughs> you know, you, and I don't care what happens. He said, we don't care if we lose the game. Pat Riley told us to stop you. <laughs> no matter what happened, we're going to stop you. You're not going you're not going to make us look like that. <laughs> and, and so that was my first game in my NBA career that I had took two shots. I was one for two. I had never took two shots in my career. No way. They, they stopped me. They doubled me. Every time I would, they would trap me in the backcourt. Then the guy would face guard me. And any time I got in the screen, in the on ball or screen roll situation, they doubled me before they even got there, so I had to get a ball up. <laughs> and so I had never been stopped that in my career, never been stopped like that. I had two shots. So um, I actually felt the wrath for that 42, that, that second game around. Yeah, you are a marked man. Pat Riley had it out for you. He had it out for me, he, and he did a good job on me. Now, speaking of a couple of those great arenas that you mentioned, like Madison Square Garden and the, the Great Western Forum, before obviously now it's the Staples Centre that the Lakers play out of, and you've played in many other great venues, do you have a favourite NBA arena that you ever played on? Oh, yeah. I actually like the, uh, the Dallas Mavericks uh, arena. It was just something about that place. I always played well there because you, I don't know if it was the lighting or the floor. It was just something about that. You know, it had soft rims there. It was just some about that arena that I really enjoyed playing there, and I always, always played well down there. It was just like I was at home there in, uh, in Dallas. Dallas Mavericks is probably my, my my best arena, I would think. Yep, that's the reunion arena. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's what it was back in those days. Yep. Yep. The first round of the 1993 playoffs featured eventual NBA finalists, the Phoenix Suns, up against your LA Lakers, and that was an amazing series, one of the great first round matchups ever. Uh, you were awfully close to eclipsing the Suns, but you lost Game 5 in overtime. Yep. You had a playoff career high in Game 1 of 35 points, and you had 7 assists, 3 rebounds, and 3 steals. Can you just talk a little bit about that series today, and how close you were after being up 2-zip over the Suns and just missing out on that opportunity to get to the second round? Yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was a, a great series. So I think we were we were seated number 8, and they were seated number 1 that particular year. Mm. And we we knew we could we could play with them, and um, again uh, that one of those particular games that they would let me come off, go to my left, and out there screen and roll, and I, and I you know made my first three four straight shots, 
And if I make three, four straight shots on you, I'm, some goes off of my head that I'm in a zone. And to go into Phoenix and to drop 35 that first game, and then to come back that second game and to beat them, and now to, you know, go 2-0 and to go home, and but we knew that the Suns was tough. They were number one seed, you know, for nothing. Yep. And they basically came to L.A. and beat us two games. And that was, and that was shocking. That was shocking. Um, but, again, they was the number one seed, and I think that particular year they played against Michael Jordan for the, for the, for the finals. And um, they got us in that, that, that back at Phoenix in that, in that overtime game and really – it was it was shocking, but I again I had played well, but you definitely want to I definitely want to beat them because it was big rivalry between Suns and um, LA. The Suns players always looked up to LA, and to to beat LA was a, was a big deal for them, and that's just regular season or in the playoffs because they were over the future all those years where Magic Johnson would just run through the you know the, the Phoenix Suns, and so that organization always wanted to be. You know, at the at the top, and so they was they was good for the NBA because they, again they 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 had good players, you know they could run and gun. So that was a, that was a rivalry game, and that was a, that that was that series was a tough a tough series to lose when you we we felt we should have won that one. Yeah, you're very close, but just couldn't quite get over the hill. And in the late 1980s, as you said, I think it might have been 89, and then 1990 season. The Lakers and Suns played each other in the playoffs a couple of times too, and yep. had some good matches going back to those days too. Yep, very good. Yeah, yep. very good. Now your first three seasons in LA, you averaged 14 points, six assists, and three rebounds, along with almost two steals a game, which are obviously super numbers. And you're the linchpin for the team at the point for those Lakers teams. Looking back now, which is some 20 years later, do you have a greatest moment or memory for, of playing with the Lakers? Well, I, I think the, the the biggest memory is 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 to you know get a chance to just to be in the circle with you know Magic Johnson and mm-hmm. and to know Dr. Buss and and Jerry West and Michael Cooper and Mitch Kupchak and all those great players, AC Green, James Worthy, just to be a part of that and 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 then look back and say, hey, I was on the floor with those guys competing. You know, just to just to be a LA Laker was it was probably the highest you know honor for myself. You know, just to be a part of the Lakers organization, just to play in the in the Great Western Farm. You know, with, with a Laker jersey, so I know what it is to be you know a Laker, and to watch them today with you know with Nash, with how with all those players, and then watch them struggle. Um, is uh, is tough because you still feel that you are part of it. Um, I know what I know. Some of the things that are going on in the locker room, and, and I know some of the plays and the things that they're running on the floor, and because you you done it and you, and you know, just to see you know Jack Nicholson and all those stars sitting on the front row and all those things, it brings back a lot of a lot of memories. But the the, the difference is so quick though. You know, it, it seemed like those those years that I was there went so quick. But at the time, that was you know, that was five years, and it it seemed so long. But now it seems so quick. Mm. So my my LA was, and then when I heard you know Dr. Buss had you know passed today, was um was you know it was a little sad. But you to know Dr. Buss built that you know the Lakers up, and the way he did it, and he, and he loved winning. 
and just to be a part of all that, you know, all that tradition was uh, was just great. It's a great feeling. It really is. Yeah, amazing memories, no doubt. Now, do you think, speaking of the Lakers, do you think they have a chance to turn their season around and finally get some sort of win streak going and get some team cohesion to make it into the, say, seventh or eighth seed come playoff time, or do you think it's just gone too far? Uh, look, I think they, I still think they got a, they got a chance. I think they're going to make the playoffs. I think they got, they just got to come together, and to bring, you know, Nash in and to bring um, Howard in, and and it's different for those guys. You know, Kobe is over his career is, you know, a big scorer and you know shoots the ball a lot, and you, I think to make that team work. You know, Nash needs to, you know, facilitate everything there. And it's, uh, and I see Kobe, you know, you know, pulling back his, his offense to make the, you know, to make it work as far as the team. But you're going to have to, you're going to have to put Nash, put that ball in Nash's hand and let him facilitate. That's what he does. You've you got to be unselfish with that unit. When you're playing with great players, you got to have somebody to, to facilitate it, and that's and, and it should be Nash. And I know it's it's tough for those guys to to adjust to Kobe, and it's and it's tough for Kobe to adjust to those guys because you know Kobe used to shooting thirty forty shots a night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you playing with you know he, he Kobe got some great players. You got the soul. You got Howard. You you got Artis. You got George. You got Nash. You got a lot of great players right there. And so to put that together. You got you to sacrifice your game for the better of the team, and I think if 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 Kobe can you know accept that, and the Lakers got a chance. They have some wonderful pieces. It's just a matter of trying to get them all together and playing on the same page. Even though yep. it's a cliche, but if they can get that to happen, then they have a chance. And if they can squeeze into the playoffs, you never know what sort of damage they can cause in the first, second round, and beyond. Yeah, they could they could they could be tough. They could be tough if they could, if they can do that, and and that and that's what I think everybody's waiting to see how how it's going to happen. And did you happen to catch the All Star game yesterday? Yes, uh, I, I, the All Star game was you know was great. Uh, I thought Chris Paul was is just amazing. Just to watch some of the things that he do and how he facilitate and, and, and can pass and get everybody off, and then he can he can score. He he, he makes the game exciting. I got a I got a young son back in uh, in, in Arizona, who's um, who's one of the top six graders in the country, right? Mm-hmm. And I just tell him, just watch Chris Paul. <laughs> That's the guy you watch. You can watch the dumps with LeBron and, and Kobe scoring, but watch what this guy does. He's he's one of the uh, uh, he's going to go down in history. He's got to be one of the, the best uh, league guards ever, because he he is amazing. He is doing some wonderful things, and it just seems like he's getting better every single season. So he's yep. going to be quite scary by the time his NBA career is over. Yeah, scary, yeah. Now, following your NBA career, you played professionally in Europe. Can you just talk a little bit about the experiences you had playing overseas, Sadal? Look, uh, Europe was Europe was a, a different type of experience, mm. you know, coming from the NBA. Um, I, I did Paris, you know, my uh, first year at the NBA. And the, the experience was um, a little different because you, you're used to these, you, you know, flying first class and then staying in the best hotel. When you go to Europe, it's not that quite way. Yeah. You know, you're living in some of the hotels, uh, you know, okay. And then the flooring, the flooring you're playing, you know, cement floors. So all those things that you, 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 you've been spoiled in the NBA, it's, it's not quite as set up in Europe like that. And because the floors were so hard over there, 
I, I got over there my first year, and I, I tore my knee up over there. And so I did about, three, I think, three months in Paris, and I had to come back and have surgery. Mm. And I uh, tore my patella tear over there, and that, that really set me back. And I came back to the um, U.S. I had the surgery, Dr. Andrews down there in uh, Birmingham, and went through that, that process, and then I ended up in Houston and did, uh, you know, half a season with the Rockets. And um, that was, a, that was a, you know, again, a pretty good experience. We had all old guys on that, you know, on that team. So, um, but, yeah, Europe was a, 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 good, a good experience, and then I did Greece. I did Greece and again uh, for four months, and then I did um, Switzerland. I actually even went to Switzerland and mm-hmm. played over there. So I had my, you know, Europe experience to play that international uh, feel of basketball. But it's a, it's a, it's totally different from the NBA. Totally different. Yeah, chalks and cheese, I guess, as you're saying. Yeah. Now I did mention at the start in the introduction that you were a teammate with Hakeem Olajuwon. Just briefly, how was it playing with the Dream, and how do you compare all these fantastic players that you play with, the Jordan, Magic, Hakeem, Dr. J, all these sort of guys? Is it possible to even say who is the best player you played against, or it's just been a fantastic experience playing with all the different styles? Look, all those guys, all those. Players are great. Dream was an, another fantastic player. You know, that particular year we had Barkley, Dream, and you had Drexler. And you got three Hall of Famers on the floor, and they all crying for the ball. <laughs> you know, so that was because these guys had so much success. Mm. And so you trying to, again, you got to have somebody at the top that can make everybody happy. You know, and trying to get those guys the ball in their spot. And if you go to one of them twice, the other two, you know, not happy. So, you, you, again, you got to have somebody, somebody strong that can facilitate that. But as far as talent, you know, Dream is, is, is one of the best ones ever, especially in the post. You know, this guy could score. You couldn't stop him down there. You you had the double team and you stop him down there. And you had Drexler who could run on the outside and dunk the ball and fly through the sky. And you had, you know, Barkley. So, you you know, that, that team was loaded. You know, we, we had our opportunity to actually go to the finals. But John Stockton hit us hit us that that big that big three and actually beat us in, in Houston. And so that was, I think that was game seven. And that was you know, that, that was that was shocking. But I've been very fortunate because I've I played with some of the best players ever. But out of all these players, Michael Jordan is still is still the the best one. There's, there's no question asked. He's the best one. Yeah. Have you recently been in touch with Jordan, or do you particularly associate with any players from your playing days more than others? Well, when um, every year I go back to America mm-hmm. and I take you know you know Australians over to, to get them full ride scholarships. This year in uh, Los Angeles, I got a chance to just run into a lot of guys. You know, I, I talked to Gary Payton on the phone. I saw Kenny Smith. I, I saw. I talked to Reggie Thiers. I saw Odin Polonese. I, I saw Cedric, talked to Cedric Sabalas in Arizona. So I, um, I, every, periodically you, you, you run into guys. I see Charles Barkley in Arizona because he's still, you know, based out of there. Yes. So every time I go home, I'll, I'll run into some of the ex guys back there. And, and that's a lot of fun. And I, the whole conversation is about weight. 
you know, how much weight each guy has, has picked up. <laughs> and so I'm considered one of the small guys over there. And I said to Sabala, so I mean, he's like, what are you doing? You in, you in great shape. And I just said, look, I, I spend two, three hours a day in the gym working out doing cardio. Uh, my, my, my biggest fear is to gain a lot of weight. And when I go home, I, a lot of those ex-guys, they, they, they look bad. Their bodies, they all picked up a lot of weight. So I try to stay away from that, that situation. Yeah, I guess once they've had a, such a long career over there and have been at the highest level with the, keeping their fitness as much as they can, once their career is over, sometimes they don't look after their bodies perhaps as well as other players do. But that leads me in beautifully to my next question, which is about your Australian Basketball College. Yep. Now, you established that to assist elite juniors, but you also cater for some other ability levels too from guys around Australia mm-hmm. uh, to prepare them for college basketball in the USA. Can yeah. you just talk a little about what you do specifically and how you and other coaches, including your son, Sadal Jr., help prepare Australia's next generation of players? Look, we've been, I think we've been doing this for four or five years now, and we, you know, you got, you got Daryl McDonald and you got Lenard Copeland, who are, you know, these guys are Hall of Famers, you know, in the NBL. And to have those guys on your staff is, is, is great for what we do. We, we, all of us have played this game at the, at the highest level. And now we, we can't play anymore. So our concept is to, you know, try to make pathways for all these kids. Mm-hmm. The kids that want to, you know, play basketball at a, at a high level. And in America, you know, we, we grow up to, you know, get an opportunity to play basketball and, and then go to college and get that full ride, you know, full, full ride scholarship and, you know, play basketball. And so a lot of kids in Australia, you, you, you know, wanted that opportunity. But I, I think they, 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 they didn't know how to get there. And so that's how we, we actually started this company because we all had experience of, you know, going to college, getting a full ride scholarship and going on to our our basketball careers. And we've been doing this, uh, you know, four or five years and we've had some pretty good success. I think we've actually put about 14 kids over over the last couple of years. You know, so that's, that's, that's been a, you know, that's, that's kind of giving back as far as uh, us. This year we got about, I think in the academy, we got about 26 guys and I think about, 18 of those guys trying to go over and, you know, to play college basketball. So it, it gives you an avenue because in the, in Australia, you guys would be called a Hicks. And so where in America, you know, you get a full ride scholarship and you play basketball for the, for the school, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to pay any money back. Yeah. And we encourage all our kids, yeah, you play basketball, but you need to get your degree. And that's, and we always, once a kid goes over to America, we always follow him. We always call the coach and see how he's doing. We'll call the kid and see how he's doing. So we, it's, it's still an AUBD family. We always look after when you come back, and we bring you back to talk to the kids that we got in the academy now. So it, it's been a good program. We, we like to get kids from 10, 11 years old to actually groom them, give them the opportunity that, that we had as, as, as young kids. It sounds like you're doing some great things as well, and obviously looking out for them too once they hit stateside as well, which is very important. Yep, 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 yep. That's, it, it, the, the academy has, has been, been great, and, and uh, we're we having a good time doing it. Yeah, I've got just one more question or two before I let you go. You've been very generous with your time, so thanks again for that, Sadal. Okay. What do you think about the, the crop of... You mentioned there's about 14 players who are over in the U.S. at the moment that have come through the basketball college. How yep. do you think those guys are progressing at the moment, and do you think there are some that may head towards the highest level? 
Well, look, some of those guys, some of those guys um, will definitely, you know, play Europe. Um, some of those guys will play in the NBA. You know, you you never know. You know, mm-hmm. what, what we usually tell those guys that go over, look, when you go over, get that degree first. Yep. Enjoy playing basketball. You know, give yourself options. And if you if you go to Europe, if you go to the NBA, NBA, or NBA wherever you go, here's another career that you could have as far as basketball. You can follow your, your your basketball career anywhere in the world. But then when basketball is over, you got that you got that degree to fall back on. And we really encourage that. But you know, you never know with some of these guys. You might I might look around one of these guys in the NBA. And man, that'd be a great, you know, great accomplishment for AUBD putting a kid from Australia in the NBA. Definitely would be, and I hope that does happen for you. And no matter what you're doing, you're obviously promoting the Australian players, and you're doing a great thing for them. So, congratulations for that. Now, Sadal, it's been great chatting with you today and learning more about your storied career. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me, and I wish you and the Basketball College all the best in the future. All right, thank you, Adam. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please visit the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.